We are going to be in Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through chapter 3, verse 6 this morning. It's on page 837 in the Pew Bibles in front of you if you're using those. Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 18. Well, in this world, there are many different types of people, different ethnicities, different genders, different ages, and yes, even different personalities. You know, uh, you have the type of people who are rule followers. Uh, They don't like to rock the boat. They sometimes follow the rules unquestioningly. Then you have the type of people who do the exact opposite. They've never met a rule they didn't like to break or at least bend. Which category do you fit into? Well, in today's text, we're going to see both of those types of people on display in epic fashion. Uh, The last couple of weeks, we've seen Jesus in controversy with the Pharisees and scribes over healing and forgiveness of sins, for eating with tax collectors and sinners. And this week, we're going to see Jesus just chill out and play nice. Not exactly. In fact, he seems to almost step on the gas pedal in challenging the religious establishment and their understanding of God. He continues to intentionally rock the boat. So let's jump into the text. Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 18. This is the word of the Lord. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And the people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins. And the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of presence, which which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again, he entered the synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. 
And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to him, To them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill? But they were silent, and he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Our three main movements in this text this week are these. Number one, fasting and feasting. Two, the gift of the Sabbath. And three, common enemies. So point number one, fasting and feasting. If you'll look with me again at verses 18 through 20 of chapter two. First of all, let's start here. What is fasting? Uh, If you're new to Christianity or unfamiliar with fasting, uh, fasting in the scriptures is the voluntarily giving up of something, usually food, for the purpose of prayer and focusing on God. We know that it was the tradition of the Pharisees actually to fast twice a week on the second and fifth days. So every single week, the Pharisees would fast on Mondays and Thursdays. In Luke chapter 18, verses 10 through 12, we see Jesus giving this parable uh, where this is actually on display. Jesus says this, Luke 18, 10 through 12, says, Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. See, the Pharisee in this story believed that he was more loved by God because he did these things. In fact, the name Pharisee actually means holy ones. But here's the deal. Judaism and the scriptures only required one day of fasting a year on the Day of Atonement, a day of repentance and forgiveness. We see that day described in Leviticus chapter 16. Sure, there were other times to fast, like on a day of mourning or or to petition God or even to repent over sin, but there was only one day that was mandated. Day of Atonement. And to be clear, Jesus wasn't against fasting. We know that at one point he fasted for 40 days. But to demand fasting like the Pharisees were doing was to go past what God had actually said. The Pharisees had made fasting twice a week into kind of a a litmus test of godliness. John's disciples are fasting. The disciples of the Pharisees are fasting. Jesus, if if you want to be taken seriously, what in the world are you doing? Well, let's just ask the question. What is Jesus doing? Last week, we saw that he wasn't fasting at all. He was eating with tax collectors and sinners. So these people ask an honest question. 
Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast, Jesus? And what does he say? Look at verse 19 and 20. Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Now, understand this. Uh, Today, when a couple gets married, you say your vows, you walk out, and you have a brief reception. Then you go on a honeymoon, right? Well, not in Jewish culture, not in Jesus' time. When a bride and a bridegroom were married, they had a full week house party, celebrating, feasting, joy. Sounds amazing, right? For most, this was the best week of their lives. The couple was treated as a king and a queen, so much so that they actually wore crowns during this week. During this week, they had a group of their closest friends who were actually called guests of the bridegroom, who essentially feasted and celebrated with them. Now, can you imagine being a guest of the bridegroom and fasting in the middle of that? That's absurd, right? It'd be like going to a Thanksgiving feast and somberly telling everyone, No, 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 don't pass the turkey, or the stuffing, or the gravy, or the deviled eggs. I'm fasting. Come on, man. It's ridiculous. It'd even be disrespectful to your host to do something like that. It'd be like showing up to a wedding in funeral garb. Totally out of place. You see Jesus' point? Pharisees had taken religious observances and become a wet blanket to the party. They had lessened the joy of the children of God. Have you ever been around someone like this? The room's full of joy and celebration, but they're just kind of Eeyore. Sucks the life out of the room. That's what Jesus is challenging here. The bridegroom, Jesus, is with them. To fast during this season would have been completely inappropriate. They were to use this time to feast, not to fast. And look what Jesus goes on to say, verses 21 and 22. He he tells them this, and then he gives them a little parable. He says, No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. These two metaphors here make exactly the same point. You know, if you wash cloth, it shrinks. If you put a patch on some torn cloth before you shrink the cloth, it's going to shrink too. The old cloth, which has already been shrunk, won't. The result's going to be a bigger tear. Similarly, during this time, they would actually store wine in goat skins. Well, goat skins, when used for the first time, would stretch 
which was needed. As wine ferments, it gives off gas. Whatever it's in better be able to expand. If you put that new expanding wine into old, brittle, rigid skins, it's going to blow up, literally. Now, you've got wine on the ground, and your wine skin's destroyed. You see that? Jesus isn't here saying that he's there to destroy the law. That's not what he's saying. He is saying, trying to put me into your rigid, religious, legalistic system is going to result in destruction. The gospel of joy is going to burst your bubble. It's going to wreck your view of who you think is a child of God and how you become one. Understand this. When Christ fills the wineskin of your life, you're going to be filled to new limits. Limits that brittle religion can't hold. He's going to fill every aspect of your life. To be with Jesus was meant to be a time of joy. I wonder if you've ever thought of Jesus in that way. Have you ever thought of Jesus as kind of a wet blanket who takes all of the joy and fun out of life? Maybe as someone who creates rules that you have to follow in, in order to earn his love? That couldn't be further from the truth. To be with Jesus it is like being at a seven-day wedding feast. Remember, Jesus' message, we, we've heard this word time and time and time and time again in the book of Mark. Jesus' message is known as what? The gospel. It's good news. <laughs> being invited to a seven-day celebratory feast is good news. Being invited to an eternal celebratory feast is even better news. And that's what Jesus offers. Look at this. Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 through 9. Revelation 19, 6 through 9. It says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude. So this is John's vision of what's going on in heaven. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. For those who, who turn from their sin and trust in Jesus, you're going to be at this eternal feast. Then there will be no more fasting, no more tears, only pure joy. That's what Jesus' life on earth was pointing to. You don't get to that supper through keeping external rules. You get to that supper through trusting joyfully in Jesus. The gospel will burst the view that, that religion leads to God's love. Now, he does say that there will be a time when fasting will be appropriate. 
Verse 20, when the bridegroom is taken away from them. Jesus is telling them, even though they don't completely get it at this point, he's telling them that he was going to be taken away from them. We know that that it would be through death, death on a cross, through Roman execution. So Jesus isn't saying that fasting today is inappropriate. It's completely appropriate if done scripturally with a gospel focus. But since fasting isn't the main focus of this text, I'm just going to move on. So Jesus has one controversy with the Pharisees and then just calms down and avoids them. Nope. More controversy. Point two, the gift of the Sabbath. Look with me at verses 23 through 28. While this is another scene in the scripture, it's a similar issue. Again, the Pharisees believed that observing the law was what made them accepted by God. So they set up these metaphorical fences around the law so that in their minds, they wouldn't even get near breaking the law. It'd be like seeing a speed limit sign on the interstate. All right, 75 miles an hour. Let's set our own law at 45 miles an hour to make sure that we never get a ticket. Essentially, that's what the Pharisees had done. They had created a a whole book of rules that were not in the scriptures themselves to kind of keep people from even approaching breaking the law. In this case, they were upset about the Sabbath. And, and working on the Sabbath specifically. So let's do some background work here. What was the speed limit sign? And what had they turned it into? First of all, notice in our text that Jesus doesn't deny that there is such thing as the Sabbath. He doesn't, in response to, to their prodding, he doesn't say, uh-uh, the Sabbath is nonsense. It, it doesn't exist anymore, or it's not real. It's not what he says. So, what is the Sabbath, and where did it come from? Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Genesis 2, verses 1 through 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. So he's been creating everything that there is. On the seventh day, God had finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Sabbath comes from the Hebrew word Shabbat, or rest. I want us to notice this. This is Genesis chapter 2. So Sabbath comes before the fall, before sin entered the world. It's not something that's given as kind of a redemptive regulation that earns God's love. They already fully had God's love in Genesis 2 as a part of the Ten Commandments. So, So that was Genesis 2, but again, this pops up as part of the Ten Commandments. God said this, Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. 
Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath day to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Again, Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 12 through 15 shows us that the Sabbath is also a day for remembering God as our rescuer and redeemer. Check this out. Deuteronomy 5, starting in verse 12. It says, Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor, and on it do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox, or your donkey, or any of your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. One thing that's common to all three of those passages is that God gave the Sabbath for our enjoyment. It's a wonderful thing to rest one day in seven. Our bodies need it. Our souls need it. It's meant to be a day of ceasing, of celebrating, and of worshiping. It's meant to be a breath of fresh air every seven days. It's meant to be something that we actually look forward to. It's meant to point us to Christ, who is our true rest, our Redeemer. The point here is this. The Sabbath was made for our benefit and for our joy. That's the speed limit. Now, what had the Pharisees done with it? They built a fence. 39 specific laws or activities that they said you couldn't do on the Sabbath. Because in their opinion, to do so would be working. One of those 39 laws was reaping grain. You see, the contrast here with what the actual purpose of the Sabbath is, once again, Pharisees had had turned something joyous and life-giving into cold and lifeless religion. Brittle wineskins. Jesus' disciples are walking. Something that also would have violated the Pharisees' list. And what do they do? They pick some grain. You can almost picture that in your mind, right? Walking in the grain fields running your hand along the stalks, the wind gently blowing the wheat, the sun shining, birds chirping. A couple of disciples instinctively grab a handful of grain and pop it in their mouths. In that moment, you can almost imagine two emotions that the Pharisees had. First, blood pressure boiling, anger, They're working. What are they doing? They're reaping grain. But 
paired with this anger, an emotion of giddiness and glee. We've got him now. He's allowed his disciples to break the fourth commandment. So how does Jesus respond? He could have responded in several ways. He could have told them that they were petty and to go take a hike and get out of his face. He could have just ignored them. Instead, he takes them back to scripture. Not only that, he he takes them to their most beloved king, King David. He says this, do you guys read your Bible? First Samuel 21 verses one through six. David's being chased by Saul. He went through the temple and he asked the priests for bread to eat. And the priest essentially says this, all I've got is the communion bread. So he gives the bread to David and David takes the bread to his men and they eat it. You see that? With David, the bread met the needs of he and his men. That was great. That's what the Sabbath is for. It was given to meet our needs and to bring blessing, not to restrict us and weigh us down. Sinclair Ferguson, he gives a a great illustration here. He says this. He says, the Pharisees were like the committee of a golf club which had beautiful fairways on which to play. But in order to preserve the fairways from being cut up with divots, they insisted that golfers always play their shots from the rough grass at the side. But golf courses like Sabbaths are meant to be enjoyed, not preserved as living museums. You see that? They had turned a day of blessing into a day of burden. The Sabbath is a great thing. Jesus tells them in verse 28 that he, the Son of Man, is Lord of the Sabbath. Not once has Jesus downplayed the Old Testament or the law. He's bulldozed these extracurricular fences that the Pharisees have put up. And he's affirmed the purpose of the law in every single way. Now, Not only is he doing that, but in saying that he's the Lord of the Sabbath, he's making a claim to divinity. Remember, who gave the Sabbath? Genesis 2. God, right? In calling himself the Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus is saying that he created the Sabbath and is therefore sovereign over it. You can't call Jesus just a good man. He claimed authority that only God can claim. Either he's a liar, crazy, or God. There's no room for anything else. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 6 are basically the exact same thing, but just a a new scene and a new scenario. Jesus goes into the synagogue, probably in Capernaum again. There's a man with a withered hand. Is Jesus going to heal him? In the Pharisees' minds, again, healing this man would be what? Work. And a violation of the Sabbath. But what is the Sabbath for? Flourishing. Rest. Good. So in verse 4, Jesus asks them, 
Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill? But they were silent. Then Jesus heals the man in plain sight. It's almost like he's teaching in, in there and he has this man come up on stage in front of everyone. He heals him, purposefully causing controversy with the Pharisees. To be a follower of Jesus is to feast, to be full of joy. Following Jesus means true rest, true goodness. Religion had obscured and distorted all of that. So Jesus bulldozed those fences. And that brings us to our third and final point. Point three, common enemies. So meditating on all of these run-ins that Jesus had with the Pharisees can easily lead us to kind of come to the conclusion that Jesus simply opposed religion. And that's partially true. Uh, religion is the idea that, that God loves us because of what we do, or the idea that we earn God's favor by what we do. Fasting, not working on the Sabbath, on and on and on. While this passage does make it clear that Jesus is opposed to that, Mark doesn't want us to get the wrong idea here by merely believing a half-truth. And so he writes one last detail. Look with me at verse 6 of chapter 3. It says, the Pharisees went out. So after all of this, he, he talks about not fasting. He talks about the Sabbath, being Lord of the Sabbath. Verse 6, then the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. This is shocking. Or it should be anyway. What I want us to see is that this isn't a throwaway line. The Bible doesn't have any of those. Mark's statement here implicitly states one of the main themes in all of the New Testament. So, who are these people? First, the Herodians. They were a group of people who supported King Herod. Well, who was he? He represented Roman government, who had conquered the Jewish people and occupied their cities. He was the worst. Not only was he the oppressor, he was vile and corrupt. He represented Greek culture and philosophy and morality. Everything that the Pharisees were opposed to was him. On the other side, we have the Pharisees. And as we've learned, these were the most legalistic, religious, moral, traditional values people in the whole world. Now, look again at what Mark says, verse 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. What's Mark trying to say? Both sides are hostile to the message of Jesus. Neither religion nor irreligion are on Jesus' side. Do you see this? On one side, you've got the people who believe they can earn God's favor by keeping the law and even adding laws to God's commands. 
Their message is be good so that God will love you. On the other side, you've got moral relativism. Their message is, well, you've got to decide what's true and right for you. The gospel isn't either of these. The gospel is that Jesus came to this earth, obeyed the law in every single way. He then went and died on the cross, paying the just penalty that each and every one of us deserve. He did it. From that cross, he yelled what? It is finished. Meaning that that there's nothing more for us to add to what he did. He died, was buried, and rose from the grave three days later, defeating once and for all sin, Satan, and death. When we turn from our sin and trust in what Jesus did on our behalf, the Bible tells us that we'll be saved. That's good news. That's the gospel. That's the message that that neither satisfies religion or irreligion. That's the core of the scriptures. Maybe you're here today and you've been on, on one side or the other. Maybe you've lived a life of being good, keeping the laws, believing that you're earning God's love. Maybe you've lived your life like a Herodian, completely opposed to the way of Jesus. I just want to say this morning, there's a better way for both of you. Trust in Jesus. Put all of your hope and faith in him. That's what it means to be a Christian. And we plead with you this morning to make that decision, to let go of your past and your present and cling to Christ. You'll never regret it. In closing, I want us all to hear the words of Jesus from Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30. Matthew 11, 28 through 30, Jesus says this. He says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Will you allow Jesus to be your Sabbath rest today? Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are the Lord of the Sabbath. That to trust in you means rest for our souls. Just like we look forward to Sabbath rest here on earth, we look forward to eternally resting with you at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Lord, that's going to be an amazing feast. Or we can hardly wait. Lord, help us to see you like that. You are our Lord of joy, a Lord of rest, a Lord of celebration. Lord, may that be the reason why we strive to obey you. Not because we think we're earning your love or your favor 
We already have it through Christ. Lord, let us rest in that. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.